Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Bruce Garrick. Today, I have a special guest, the designer of Hearts and Minds from Worthington Games, John Paniski. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bruce. Good to be here. So, John, um, you know, in talking to designers about, um, you know, the games about Vietnam, uh, I haven't ever talked to anybody who has a personal experience of Vietnam, and uh, I bring that up because in your uh, playbook, the game comes with a rule book and a playbook, and the playbook is a um, sort of has the scenarios in it and uh, some um, descriptions of the cards, and it's uh, uh, led into by your introduction, which says that uh, your interest. I'll, I'll just quote. Uh, from the playbook, it says, My interest in America's withdrawal from Vietnam runs deep. As a Marine corporal, I participated in the 1975 evacuation of Saigon and Phnom Penh. Uh, tell me about that and what, how that uh, led you to design a board game about Vietnam. Sure. I joined the Marines after high school in 1973 and mm-hmm. ended up getting out in 1977. Mm-hmm. While I was overseas in April of 1975, I was involved in the operations Frequent Wind and Eagle Pool, and these were the evacuations of civilians from Phnom Penh and Saigon. Um, And interestingly enough, I just recently found out that uh, we were eligible for awards. I often wondered about that. (laughs) So some 20-odd years later, I I learned (laughs) that I am eligible. Interesting. It was pretty tense at, at that particular juncture because right after the evacuations occurred, uh, we had uh, actually, if my, my memory may not serve me properly, but within a week or two, either before or after, uh, the axe killings occurred on the DMZ in Korea. And we were on, um, on hold to, to, go in in case that blew up anymore. And then shortly thereafter, that was the Kotang incident in which the Khmer Rouge captured the American ship Mayaguez and Marines mm-hmm. entered into what was the final combat incident in the war. Okay. A pretty interesting time. That was a very interesting time, but um, a lot of people were involved in that and didn't design board games uh about Vietnam. So what led you to, were you a board gamer beforehand, before, like in high school, or did you come back from the war and start on board games? How did that go? I grew up in a, in a board gaming family. Um, I, I guess I, I attribute my love of games probably to my mom. Mm-hmm. I can't remember a holiday when I didn't have to see the game and that, that we didn't spend a lot of time playing it. But when I got into high school and discovered girls, I found they were far more interesting. Hmm. And uh, I kind of drifted away from from game. Got it. Yeah. When I got into um, the Marines, it, it's kind of interesting because um, I ran across a a gentleman who kind of reintroduced me to game. Some people may not know, but but uh, some do, that a fellow designer, Rick Young of uh, Europe engulfed in the Fab System fame. Oh, yeah, I know him. I mean, I don't know him. I know those games, yes. Well, he and I were Marines together, and he sort of pulled me back from the partying scene, reintroduced me to board games. Interesting. And the first game that he taught me was Breitenfeld. It was a, a 30 years' portfolio game by mm-hmm. SPI. Mm-hmm. 
we wound up wearing that game out. <laughs> and I eventually learned that charging a line of cannon was not a healthy thing to do. <laughs> Another game we wound up playing to death while on float in uh, the cargo bay of a helicopter carrier was SPI's Chinese farm. Oh, the, uh, the um, 1973 uh, Arab-Israeli war game. That's it, the Egyptian invasion of Sinai. We spent every spare minute shoving around cardboard and rolling dice and referencing CRTs. And uh, then when we wound up coming back to Camp Lejeune, I remember uh, another game that we played quite often was um, the SPI game Punic Wars. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the few games that I was uh, able to get the better of Rick. Hmm. Um, yet the first game of that one that we played, I wound up controlling the whole Mediterranean, but I lost Rome uh, to the last <laughs> remaining Carthaginian army. And damn if the rules didn't say that the loss of Rome meant a Carthaginian win. <laughs> we had a lot of fun playing games in the ship. Yeah, so... Um... You know, at that time, obviously, there weren't any games about Vietnam. Um, and there still aren't that many games about Vietnam. Uh, Actually, there was there was one that was um, very good. And, oh, what was uh, that? Fairly popular at the time. Uh, it was another, uh, um, I believe it was SPI, but at this point, I don't even remember. Year of the Rat. Mm. I, I'm not familiar with the game. I'm familiar with the, with the book and the movie. It's pretty good. Is that a, um, how long after the war did that come out? It was actually while the war was still going on. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was uh, 72. Really? And there was a board game already? Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So uh, it's it's been quite a few years since um, since the war ended, obviously. When did you start work on uh, on Hearts and Minds? In the 90s. Um, really, is, is when I actually started started to think about it, hmm. and it was um, it was uh, a gradual process. I would work on it, and I would drop it and do something else. I usually have four or five projects going on at the same time. And uh, how many? I'm I'm sorry, I didn't look it up before uh, before we started. But how many other games have you designed? Um, over thirty. Wow. But, okay. But only um, so far. Five have been published. Hmm. Um, currently, have four or five with with publishers right now that I hope to see out in the next couple of years. Okay. Um, so, uh, Hearts and Minds was a recent Kickstarter um, that uh, was obviously successfully funded. Uh, for full disclosure to the listeners, I backed that Kickstarter uh, because I remember when I went to a uh, to our local uh, game store. Gosh, it must have been three or four years ago um, when Hearts and Minds first came out, or the first version I saw was uh, three or four years ago. And I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I thought, uh, gosh, uh, this looks interesting. But I was sort of trying to not to buy more games uh, <laughs> because I was buying them and not playing them. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll pick this up some other time um, when I have more free time. And then uh, I went back a while later, and it was gone, and um, and it was out of print. It did and, go out of print pretty rapidly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, Worthington Games uh, just recently uh, funded a new Kickstarter 
uh, a Kickstarter for for the second edition, uh, which um, included a bigger board, um, which. Uh, from my understanding, I never played the first version, but a bigger board is nice because uh, it's an area movement game, and you kind of need space in the uh, in the in the different areas. So that's nice. Um, it just, it's a nice product um, overall. Um, I think it's definitely uh, well produced. Um, but the thing that I'm very interested in is what the how you kind of came up came to designing the game the way it is because you know. It, in Vietnam games, there are different, uh, obviously, some very specific considerations that you have to have, uh, things that you sort of have to model. Otherwise, you're not really modeling Vietnam. Uh, and those include the um, the stability of the Vietnam government, the um, supply and uh, forces available to the North Vietnamese, and obviously... Uh, the U.S.'s commitment to the war. Um, how did you sort of decide to approach the uh, and, and understanding that most of the people who are listening to this are not going to have played the game? So tell tell us a little bit about how you came to design it that way. How you, what you thought about and how those systems ended up because they're they're pretty uh, distinctive. The idea of hawks and doves and resource points. Well, I think. I, I should start off by saying um, what got me interested in the, in the first place, mm-hmm. and and that sure. was my fascination with with card driven games. Okay, CDGs at that time were just uh, were just becoming popular. Um, we the people had had just come out, and I was I was very interested in the idea of a Vietnam game that was card driven. Nobody had done that yet. And I wanted to be the first. So that, that was my primary focus. Um, and at that time, it was about you know, 25 odd years after the war. So the, the pain and the anger of the conflict, um, that, that it tended to evoke in earlier years, that, that was beginning to fade. Um, and I think pain and the anger in you, in you, you mean? I think in general, in the country, um, Vietnam was something of a national Rubik's cube. Um, the nation is, is kind of juggling the events, you know, turn, turning them over in, in our collective mind. And we wound up manipulating the facts and glossing them over and omitting others. And we wound up coming to a lot of erroneous conclusions about the war as a people. And, uh, I think to salvage our, our national pride, we, we wound up, um, coming up with all kinds of what-if scenarios. And in, in my opinion, what, what I've come to learn is that Vietnam was exactly as it was described at the time. It was, it was a mistake. It was a quagmire. Far easier to, um, to get into than to get out of. It rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and still does. But as time passed... It, it got easier, I think, for people to accept the idea of a Vietnam game, and, and I predict we'll probably see a whole lot more um, as time passes. To get back to, to um, your original question, um, I wanted players to be frustrated. That was that was my first and, and foremost objective, and I and I think we've achieved that. I wanted them to face multiple choices. 
and throw stumbling blocks into into um, both players' paths. Um, historical stumbling blocks. Blocks that both the communists and we and our allies would face. For example, the inability to deal with communist movement along the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the, the elusiveness of D.C. guerrilla. Um, the instability of, of our Vietnamese allies and, as you said, the government. Mm-hmm. And the involvement of the Montagnards and on and on. And, and so when you when you put all those pieces together you know you have uh you have a system that uh represents you have a resource point system that sort of your card driven game mechanic is familiar to players who have played games like this in the past you have an event you have a number on the card that show, uh dictates how many resource points you get to use Mm-hmm. Those resource points are used to activate units. You call it mobilizing units. Um, but uh, you also have additional resource points that uh, come from other... You have the stockpile, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of a, a ongoing set of resource points. And then you have resource points that uh, the blue player... You call them the blue, the blue and red players... Um, I, that's obviously a, a very deliberate thing that I'll ask later, but, um, you, yeah, uh, I, I hope you get to that. Okay. Um, the, um, the blue player gets more points if the, uh, if the commitment level is Hawk, you have the Hawk and Dove dichotomy, uh, and then you have various, um, cards, campaign cards that, uh, can, sort of um, get more hawk or dove points based on achieving objectives. And these all sort of roll together, uh, and it kind of creates this momentum for one side or the other. Um, talk a little bit about how you put those pieces together. Well, one of the things that I wanted to reflect with the cards was additional variety. I wanted the, um, the players to be faced with multiple choices, the more choices, the the um, additional frustration. What do I do? Where typical CDGs allow player to use an activation number to either activate a unit or use an event, I wanted the player to struggle between using those activation points for a number of things. Mm-hmm. My developer, um, Stan Holinsky, to, to whom much of the credit for Hearts and Minds belongs, added... That to this, when he allowed the player to pay for some of the activation points to get the event. Whereas before, players in a CDG would be given the choice to activate a unit or use the event. Now you can have your cake and you can eat it too. Mm-hmm. And if you want, you can um, bank some of that for future use. You have a... Um an interesting system where you know you you um you play the card you move units you can actually move units if i understand it from reading the rules and trying to play it on my own uh you can activate units multiple times um but you move them and then the opposing player uh if you're the this usually happens with the blue player and the red player 
the blue player can move in the, uh, rather than having any kind of hidden movement, the red player evades or tries to evade. And this, I assume this is your uh, attempt to, um, cause the, the frustration. You don't have, you don't have a hidden movement system, uh, in the game per se. It's more a system of the blue player tries to attack things or, uh, force combat and the red player sort of evades and 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 maybe is not really even there i think you say at one point in the rules um yeah uh, originally my idea was um the idea that in many cases there was false information um, mm-hmm. uh, false intelligence in which uh, our our forces would believe that there was a force of the enemy in a particular area and they could never find them and a great deal of resources was spent in looking and yet nothing nothing was ever um, accomplished mm-hmm. and i wanted that reflected so i invented what were called poof units p-o-o-f mm-hmm. and i always liked that name but it, it came to my attention later that um, that has a completely different connotation in Britain. So, mm. so we had to change that. Got it. So, getting back to sort of the the um, how these all these systems tie together. I mean, you have uh, sort of very Vietnam. The game seems very Vietnam centric in, in terms of the sides. Um, political control is. You have you have a bunch of different provinces, and then one side or the other has political control of a given province. And then additionally, for the blue side, there's the possibility of pacification or non-pacification of the uh, of the province, which is separate from the political control of the province. And you make a very very um, you make a point in the rules to explain. This the the blue flags are not political control; right. um, they're pacification. Talk a little bit about why you have a pro, an area movement game with with uh, political control and pacification being separate mechanisms. What are you trying to do with that? But essentially, the the pacification goes to the title of the game. Um, it was an attempt to win the hearts and minds of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, the communists were trying to do the same thing. Um, that I think they were trying to do it in more heavy-handed a manner. Um, so, uh, basically, a, a three-step process. Okay. There, there is no control where the civilian population is neutral. Um, there is uh, the swing to the communists, which then um, is recognized with a yellow star on a, a red background unit. Mm-hmm. And then there's pacification, which is the, the blue star. Um, our own attempt at pacification in the very beginning of the war was heavy-handed as well, which is why um, the communists made such headway in the very beginning. Uh, we were forcing the Vietnamese population into fortified camps um, where we could supposedly um, control the countryside knowing that the people that we trusted were 
in in these fortified positions, and then anything outside of them could be shot. Mm -hmm. All we did was turn the population against us because we were removing them from their homes and from the the, the burial grounds of their ancestors. Hmm. So my understanding of that is actually that, um, you know, U.S. strategists... um, had learned of the the idea of these uh, what they were I think they were called strategic hamlets at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, had learned that from the British, who um, used that effectively actually in the uh, action that was known as the Malayan Emergency, uh, which I think a lot of U.S. Uh, counterinsurgency planners studied carefully uh, at the time, uh, since I think that action ended in 1960 or so. Um, but um, in the Malayan emergency, the uh, move to strategic hamlets uh, or the, their version of strategic hamlets was um, was accompanied by an in, a, a rise in the uh, the population standard of living. So while they initially were uh, unhappy to be moved, uh, they were pleased with their increase in standard of living, and this ultimately made them uh, – was a pro, a net benefit for the British. Uh, I guess in the uh, Vietnam uh, scenario, this that actually didn't occur. Um, you don't actually have any specific rules for um, for strategic hamlets, though. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, you have an action. You can uh, pacify. So you can you can um, pacify a province. Um, with uh, that's that's sort of the you, like you said it's the third step of um, of a uh, of a control the the North Vietnamese can control a province the uh, Vietnamese the sorry the blue, red player can control a province the blue player can control, control a province and then if the blue player controls a province politically you can then attempt pacification the um, the the attempt to control a province by the blue player can only be automatically done by the uh, only by South Vietnamese units, uh, if I if I read correctly, is what what's the um, uh, the, what's the what's the the sort they speak of speak the language, um, they understand the culture, and they're they're closer to the people. We were we were foreigners, um, we were. In, no matter what we thought of ourselves, we were an occupying power, um, the same as the French before us, and the same as the Chinese before that. Um, the, the Vietnamese were going to respond much better to the wrong people. Yet, yet for pacification, uh, I think you have to have you have to have a U.S. Uh, you have to have a U.S. unit, isn't that the and, case? And that is to indicate that we are bringing about friendly relations with that African with us, U.S. Interesting. So uh, you had mentioned before about about Malaya, and that immediately made me think about um, the fact that um, our lessons are learned very hard, and we also tried a similar tactic in the Philippines uh, during the Philippine insurrection. Mm-hmm. It, did not, it did not work any better than it did in Vietnam. I see. Um, so this kind of idea of the political control versus pacification, it's, it hinges on the fact, the pacification hinges on the fact that um, 
it requires the U.S. So when the U.S. pulls out of South Vietnam, which uh, it's required to do uh, in uh, beginning in 1969 because of Vietnamization, um, which is, um, you know, a post-Tet Offensive kind of, uh, okay, we're going to turn the war over to the South Vietnamese mm-hmm. um, and we're going to get our troops out. Um, after the U.S. starts pulling out, they can't really pacify anymore. How does that change the conflict? It's it's kind of a downward spiral at that point. Um, it's, it's a real struggle for the blue player to stay alive. So do you, I mean, do you see your game as, because, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to some other designers about how they see uh, the situation as a, as a conflict to be modeled in a game. And, um, you know, I've, one uh, designer, actually, the game is designed so that you basically can't, as the, as, the, uh, as the blue player in his game, the equivalent of the blue player, you can't win. Uh, it's just how long do you last before you lose? Uh, do you see your game as being this kind of game? Talk about winning hearts and minds and, and what that represents to you. I, I don't think it's it's a hopeless situation. Um, uh, there's a lot that, that um, lies in, in the luck of the cards. I, I, I'd like to say that it's always going to be um, perfectly balanced, but it isn't always. Um, one of the unique aspects of hearts and minds is the, uh, the three decks. That it that it uses, um, and you hadn't mentioned that, but that's probably a, a good time to do so. Yeah, bring that. Yeah, talk uh, about talk about the three deck, decks. The blue deck and there's a black deck, and the black deck has um, uh, has events that would um, apply to both sides. They are not um, nationalities. Excuse me, nationality specific. So at the beginning of the game, you would divide that deck and shuffle it into the red deck and shuffle the remainder into the blue deck. And this allows for an endless variety of, of games because you're never going to have the exact same mix. Kind of lost track of where I was going with that. Well, I think one of the things that we were talking about was the fact that, you know, your game is not a hopeless cause for the blue player, which, it, you know, in some other designers' minds it is. But if you're, if you have, you know, you have three decks... Um, they, um, you know, you have these different uh, cards that you can play as campaigns yes. uh, to sort of turn the tide. Um, the uh, the blue player only has cards for different zones. It's sort of like you're going to make an, you're going to show the world and the country that you can take control of a part of Vietnam. Whereas the red player has the general of the grand uh, campaign uh, cards. The you know. Tet Offensive and Easter Offensive, and they're sort of um, pushing and, and, and pulling at this, this idea of, uh, of hawk and dove. I mean, I, I agree that you can, you know, if you have good cards, you can sort of push things one way or push things the other way. Um, you know, as you, as, you, um, as you get later on historically, you have, you, you, early on you're getting more hawk points. Uh, later on you sort of things just kind of snowball and and you have a uh you have a um a sort of shift of opinion against the war and and you get kind of snowballed under that um, you'll notice in in the rules that the um the victory conditions are great uh, graded um i guess the better word is gradation mm-hmm. as the game 
progresses, it gets increasingly more difficult. Um, but then the victory conditions are, are lessened. So um, you always have an opportunity to, to win, but mm-hmm. it gets increasingly harder as it should. So talk about what victory means to you in, in terms of what's represented in the game situation. Uh, because you know I've 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 sort of addressed this with with different people and uh, the idea that the North Vietnamese uh, sort of give up or the North Vietnamese are defeated, which doesn't really seem to lend itself to. Um, you can't really talk about defeating North Vietnam since the in the game North Vietnam and and actually in no game that I know of is North Vietnam represented as as a an entity that you can actually invade you know you're not going to be able to um to drop a marine amphibious division uh in Haiphong Harbor that's um, a good reason um <laughs> because I think what what uh, a lot of people are thinking in the back of their minds but that never actually um bring out to the table is that invasion of North Vietnam would probably have brought on um, direct Chinese invention. Mm-hmm. And we had already seen that in Korea. And that was always in the, in the backs of the minds of our military commanders. Okay. So, so, so let's take the idea of defeating North Vietnam off the table. Um, what, is the, what does the victory in the game mean to you for the blue side? I, I think uh, running down... Uh, the North Vietnamese resources to the point where they they cannot make a, a viable offensive. They can no longer make a viable offensive. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the game ends in a victory. Uh, and you're, I guess, it, it's it's sort of one of those. It's an interesting sort of philosophical point because um, you know if you're talking about how long are you the, talking in terms of, of the game rules or are you yes about well i'm it? well i'm talking well i'm talking about in terms of no what is that what does that represent uh in in real life like what is what does that mean like the, you get to you get to that it's victory. fiction pardon it's fiction because mm-hmm. i in my heart believe that north vietnam was was going to win no matter what we did okay because they had the staying power and we did not so, um, so what? Yeah. So, it, so it, it just. So, what you're saying is that for you, that victory condition for the blue side is an arbitrary game function. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I do believe that we could have probably held on to um, South Vietnam, mm-hmm. perhaps even stabilized it to to some extent, mm-hmm. but we would have eventually left, and mm-hmm. we would have eventually taken over. I, I firmly believe. So so what you're saying is that, you know, if if you get to the victory conditions in the game, uh, you know, and the blue player wins and the North Vietnamese are unable to mount the they're out of resources and unable to mount an offensive, um, if you if your game were representing what you believe to be, you know, the reality, the game would just go on and on. The the red player would kind of just sit there doing nothing at some point the u.s forces would have to exit and the red player would once again build up resources based on you know input from you know the soviet union and china and then uh reinitiate the war so you would just basically have to sit at the game table until you know doing turns (laughs) yes 
So that that's okay. Well, that's interesting because uh, you know, talk Straps, more about that strategy was to wait us out. We knew that we would sicken of American casualties as we did, and that we would eventually leave. And he told his generals, it "Doesn't matter how many of us will die, they will give up. We just have to. We just have to wait them out, and that's what happened." Right. So. So in the game, you know, you're creating a victory condition because nobody wants to sit down to play another person and know that they're not going to win the game before they start. But you're saying that you um, that that's an arbitrary condition. That's a very that's 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 very interesting to me. Um, is there anything else in the game that you think uh, you know you've you sort of designed in a way that you thought was divorced from the realities you understood it simply because you had to do it that way to make the game make it a game that people would play i'm trying to frame how how i want to say this Hmm. okay when i began the game um it was after i learned far more about the history of vietnam and the history of our involvement Mm -hmm. than i had known when i was there Mm-hmm. And um, the entire affair pretty pretty saddened me. Okay, I saw how it divided our our nation, um, and I wanted to portray that in the game. And and the game as it as it turned out is does not entirely portray what I had wanted initially. In what way? Well, uh, to give you an indication. Um, one of my original names for the game was the Second American Civil War. Hmm. Um, and later later on, uh, a friend of mine suggested it to me, and I took it up uh, to call it Screw the People, hmm. which fit into the We the People, For the People series. Oh, I see. Got it. Yeah, I get it. Um, I wanted to show the the uh, how the activists were on the street in our country, how our politicians were at each other's throats, um, how our cities were in turmoil. At the same time, we were fighting this battle overseas. Um, and to that end, many of the events, many more of the events, um, dealt with uh, riots and activism than actually turned, turned out in, in the final game. Um, I'm not entirely unhappy, but I am unhappy with the fact that uh, a lot of it moved that direction because um, I got a lot of uh, negative feedback because of it. Um, a number of veterans um, were unhappy with with my approach. What was that approach? How were you? Tell me more about how the game, how you had uh, framed the game specifically to do what you just described? At this point, it's so far in the past, I can't give you specifics, mm-hmm. um, but I can tell you that there was there was uh, a heavier focus on the protesting in America, um, which, which, which helped to focus on uh, where our morale, where our heart in, in fighting Vietnam was affected. So in other words, the the um, the more turmoil that there was in the United States, 
the less we were likely to stay. I focused on that as much as I did on the fighting in Vietnam. Interesting. And did you have, I mean, were, did you represent the U.S. on a map? Or did you have no, processors? No, it's no. entirely, um, entirely in the cards. I see. I see. Um, well, I'm sure, yeah, I can see how that would, uh, how that would be a, a very novel approach uh, to the um, to the political situation. I feel like that there's sort of a um, there's sort of a fatalism to the political situation uh, in some of Vietnam games where um, people sort of assume this inevitable sort of boiling over of U.S. Uh, popular sentiment against the war. Um, and so it's kind of like a ticking clock, and there's, it's, it would be very difficult for uh, the U.S. to reverse that. Um, I think that, was, um, that, that truly was inevitable. Vietnam was the first televised war. And um, our families were watching uh, our brothers, fathers, uncles um, being torn apart on, on film um, when we were sitting down to dinner. It had never been done before. And I specifically remember you asked me for, for um, personal experiences. I remember my older sister um, turning off the television. Uh, during a newscast, and my father getting very upset. He was a Marine veteran from World War II, and he could not understand why she would do that. Why would she have the, the effrontery to turn off his television set when it was showing you know, our patriotism? But in her eyes, she was seeing her peers um, she had. She was a senior in high school, and she already had friends over there. She had already lost friends. So, um, even our own family is being torn apart. Interesting. Um, speaking of that part of the war, how do you feel about? Um, you know, there is definitely sort of a revisionist, um, a revisionist movement or tra- line of thought in uh, Vietnam historiography, uh, which centers around the idea, you know, Peter Braestrup and his the idea of uh, the big story. He had a very uh, much talked about book in which he uh, claimed that the media, and this is not a new idea, but he sort of approached it systematically, the idea that the media um, lost the war or helped lose the war by presenting uh, the Tet Offensive and other actions excessively negatively. Um, I don't know whether that, because there's the whole idea of the political will in the country. And if you, if you give credence to the, to the, to the revisionist Braestrup kind of uh, line of thought, you almost have to have a separate mechanism for the way that the media portrays the war. Um, Because, you know, many people that you talk to think that the Tet Offensive was this um, great um, great North Vietnamese victory, and militarily it was anything but, but politically it was obviously a huge victory because the perception of American success in Vietnam was sort of turned on its head. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about, I mean, did you, 
I know it's been a long time. Did you ever think about the difference in the presentation of the war by the media, or did you see it all as a as kind of one one thing? I'm I'm laughing because um, I can picture myself um, delivering papers uh, when when I was still in grade school, and the headlines always talked about the body count. Mm-hmm. And as a as a child, I I grew up on my my father's. Uh, taking us to war movies and mm-hmm. the patriotism that was that was brought about in what we did in World War II. That's what I was raised on. So I read these headlines and I thought, um, much the way I do in games, oh, body cap, those are victory points. Mm-hmm. Being raised on that and then getting into high school and, and hearing about all of the protests and all, it didn't affect me as much, I think, as my own father's approach to war and the news presentation of the war. So I felt like um, I needed to go to war. I needed to to join. I was not drafted. I, I was a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And body count makes it into the game. Yes, it's a it's a fundamental part of the game. Talk talk tell the listeners um, how you incorporate body count into your game about Vietnam. Well, essentially, so many um, Vietnamese lost will wind up affecting the the fall of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, the loss of, of U.S. units is um, a fundamental blow to, to um, the U.S. war effort, and um, it is incumbent on the U.S. player to guard them at all costs. And I think that's one of the, the moral issues in the game is as the blue player, you have to sacrifice your, your allies' units time and again and, and you're thinking, holy crap, I'm throwing them under the bus to save my own units. Right, because uh, Hawk and Dove uh, points are based on, uh, are not based on Arvin, uh, that's Army of the Republic of Vietnam units. They're based on uh, U.S. and a- when you say allies, the, um, the ROK, the Republic of Korea, um, and American units. Um, are- I, I should I should explain a little bit more. When <clears throat> we talk about the two different sides in the game, we talk about the Allied units versus the Communist units. Mm-hmm. In in most Vietnam games, you talk about the U.S. and and the Communists, and yet we were not alone. Um, as you said, uh, the Koreans were there with us, the Australians were there with us, the United Nations troops were there with us, and most certainly the South Vietnamese were there. So um, I, I just think it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of hubris to say it was, it was the U.S. versus the communists. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the, the body count uh, in the, the, the units in the body count box function differently, don't they, based on their nationality? Yes. Explain a little bit about that. 
I would, but I don't have the game in front of me in, the, okay. in a while since I played. So okay. if I did, I would <laughs> screw it up. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess I, I guess my point really is that um, you know the 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 Arvin units uh, are what contribute to the um, the stability of Vietnam, but Hawk and Dove points are based on casualties among U.S. and R. You know. Yeah, not the Arvin units. Uh, yeah, the, the the rock units are are blue units. Yeah, as so, are United Nations units. Right, and and so the point is that the, there's a differentiation made between the the Arvin units, and it's it's I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it, it, the U.S. doesn't really care how many for for its own purposes it doesn't care how many Arvin units are killed. Sadly, you're right. Right, and um, the, the now, amount. One, one of ahead. the things um, that I wanted to bring out in the game was the fact that <clears throat> the the um, South Vietnamese units were, were essentially provincial units. We trained many of them, and they were they thought of themselves as units protecting their their homes, their provinces. Um, they were reluctant to to go elsewhere, um, in much the same way that a lot of our boys in the Civil War were reluctant to go from Texas to Virginia. So. To simulate that in the game, um, and also simulate poor leadership in many cases, when the South Vietnamese are asked to support uh, U.S. units, um, it depends on how far away they have to move. And the further away they have to move, um, the odds are they're not going to make it. They're going to slow. And I, I think that works very well in the game. Um, they... Uh, they're not as dependable as you would like them to be. So the 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 the, the only units that are that are less effective the further they move are the Arvin units, not the NVA units. Correct. And so the you're 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 making a distinction between the idea of the Vietnam the South Vietnamese units being focused on protect, protecting their homes and the NVA units who have sort of a unifying ideology uh, who are sort of exporting or it's, I guess it's not to them it's not an exportation because they see the, see all of Vietnam as one country but um, they're willing to travel as far and and um, and do whatever they need to do and they're not ineffective based on um, they have a different motive uh, motivating factor, and thus they're not less effective in that way. You said that very well. I, I can't top that. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, so, I guess one of the questions I have for you is: you know, you started talk, you started thinking about this game in in nineteen nine in the nineteen nineties. You said um, there. I I really don't see a lot of Vietnam games now. There's some uh, games about you know. Uh, there's a Quezon game. I think John Pradas did one. Um, but there aren't really many full-on Vietnam games that I know of. Now, you said that there were going to be more. Um, I believe so. What do you think is the – do you think it's just time? Um, because it's certainly – I mean, I was I was just looking at uh, the sort of time – passage of time between uh, the, the game Stalingrad and the actual Battle of Stalingrad. And that was only about 20 years. 
And we are now, you know, 30, 40, well, definitely, almost, we're almost 40 years from the uh, U.S. evacuation of Saigon. But I think there's a, there's a big difference there, Bruce. Okay. Um, World War II was, was a, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase, a good war. Mm-hmm. Um, Vietnam had a bad aroma about it. And even for the, the veterans who came back and found themselves reviled, um, I, they didn't like it when they were there. They liked it even less when they, when they came home and had to be reminded of it. And then there were those who stayed here or who ran and never liked the idea of it to begin with. And their children on both sides were brought up with, with the idea that this was, this, this was a war not to be remembered. So I, I think to compare the two, there's not much of a comparison there. Um, I, I think even, even in school, I'm a, I'm a social studies teacher. And mm-hmm. in fact, I'm actually teaching about uh, the Vietnam War um, right now. Okay. And I find that the vast majority of kids um, only, only recognize the fact that there were, that this was a guerrilla war. But beyond mm-hmm. that, they had no idea. They, they know that we lost it, or they think that we lost it, but they have no idea where it is in the world. Um, and there isn't a kid in, in any of my classes before I got started that could describe what communism is or why it was bad. Hmm. Uh, I assume that you're remedying that. I'm trying. <laughs> okay. Well, then tell me, if that's the case, why you think there are going to be more Vietnam games? Because I think that as time goes by, the, the emotional baggage is going, to, is going to lessen. People, intelligent people, want to dig out um, explanations. I do. And the more we dig, the more we learn, and the more we learn, the more we want to share what we've learned. Particularly now. As, as gaming, I believe, is moving into a new golden age um, with the, the advent of uh, all of these uh, machines, computers, printers, uh, print and play, crowdsourcing, the advent of Euro, Euro gaming ideas. All of this um, is allowing us to bring out um, new design ideas that would have been rejected um, a decade ago. Um, and having said all that, as you brought up earlier, it's, uh, it's an untapped field, I think. There's a lot there. Um, right now, I'm giving some thought to, to doing something on, on Lam Song. Yeah. Um, I really knew nothing about it until a friend brought it up, and, I, and I'm blown away at how spectacular that particular operation was, and I'd never heard of it. To, 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 uh, 
let the listeners know Lam Son was a was an offensive by the U.S. and uh, South Vietnamese. Um, basically, into it, it went into Cambodia, didn't it? Yes, and it was spectacular. It was a spectacular failure. Yes. Yes. And we lost um, in I, I can't even count the number of choppers that went down in that operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a game Lamson seventy nine or something like that. It didn't. It didn't happen in seventy nine, but uh, I think that was one of the was a code name for it or something like that. I think there's a game out there about it. I'll have to look that up. So yeah, thank I'm you for reminding me about that. Yeah. Um. So we're almost out of time, but uh, I did not want to finish before getting you to talk about the idea of the red and the blue player. You know, y- you did talk a little bit about. The, the blue player, the idea that, uh, you know, there were a lot of people there with us. So calling it, um, calling it the, uh, the U.S. or whatever is not, um, not, not only is it inaccurate, it's kind of disrespectful um, is what I got f- from you out right. of the whole right. discussion. Um, but calling the red player, why is it, w- what is it about the red player besides communism? I mean, um, you just call the blue side the blue side. Are you calling the red side the red side just as a counterpoint, or do you, is there something uh, that you're trying to communicate there? The idea of communism being red um, pretty much came out of the um, the Cold War era and the the recognition that if you were if you were um, had communist leanings, then you were identified as a red. But well, the Bolsheviks were the Reds. That's the you know as part of the Reds and the Whites in the Russian Civil War. So yes, yes. But the the use of of calling anybody who had socialist leanings uh, a Red, I think, became pretty popular through the mm-hmm. sure, sure. Better Red than dead. Better mm-hmm. than Red. Right. Uh, um, the um, the casualties in the the Vietnam War are, are just, they are astronomical. We are, and, and, and I say this because um, you brought up the, the, the Allied side and the Communist side, and um, we so often look at our losses and we say we lost 58,000 men, and God bless those people, they went to work um, thanks to our government and, and their own possibly patriotic leanings. Um, and we memorialized them on our, on our uh, Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. And I visited that many times. The communists also lost a number of their patriots and their civilians and combined north and south. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of, of two to three and a half million people. Mm-hmm. And it boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. And I wanted, if nothing else, for people to come away um, with the idea that when you hear about Vietnam, you only you're, you're only looking at the, the iceberg on top of the water. There's mm-hmm. more underneath. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think that the game that you have, um, there, you know. Talking about the game mechanics uh, can only sort of you learn so much about um, you know what the limitations of the uh, of the two sides were um, 
you, I'm glad we were able to talk about sort of the background and what your understanding of the of the um, motivating factors were, you know, what the ultimate limitations were, because, you know, you, you, you can get bogged down in, you know, hawk and dove points and resource points and, you know, evasion, and um, it, it can all become a little bit sort of, you know, rules lawyery and clinical. Um, and so I'm glad that you were able to um, sort of illustrate and elucidate what, uh, what, kind of lies behind your game. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm going to continue to uh, puzzle through the game. I've, try, I've tried it on my own several times. Um, it's not the greatest game uh, as a solitaire game because it's a card play game. Right. But right. Uh, as soon as I'm comfortable enough with the rules and know what I'm doing um, to not get completely trounced, I'm going to take it over to uh, the uh, local game store uh, some night when I'm free and kind of arrange to some. Hopefully I can get somebody to play, and uh, I'll have more thoughts on it then. But thank you for your time, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, and, and I hope in your playing you become entirely frustrated. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Uh, okay, and good night, everybody. Take care, Bruce. Bye-bye.